Hello, you are listening to Magrebin Past and Present Podcasts. A space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology and many other subjects. This episode is part of the Contemporary Thought series and was recorded on the 3rd of October 2017 at the Centre d'études Maghrébines à Tunis, CEMAT. In this podcast, Dr. Larissa Chomiak, CEMAT director, interviews Dr. Nadia Marzouki, a lecturer at Yale School of Law and research fellow at the Centre National de la Recherche Scientifique in Paris. The title of your book is Islam, an American Religion. Can you speak a bit about the complexity or irony of the title and how you conceived of it? So after 9-11, Islam has been constructed in the public debate as a religion that is foreign to American culture. And what I wanted to do in this book is show how, on the contrary, Islam has become more and more a domestic issue that has played an essential role in the public debates about the definition of the American uh, identity and boundaries of American democracy. So I chose this title for two reasons. One is that I wanted to show how, despite or through these controversies, American Muslims have come to integrate and to uh, play a major role in the American political discussions about this identity uh, of post 9-11 America and democracy and how they have resorted to all the instruments of American democracy to uh, gain an important role and to win uh, the rights to religious freedom and to act as American citizens. So they have used significantly the, the, the instrument of courts and of American law to defend their rights. This is an important aspect of the American debates on Islam that is distinct from the European debates on Islam. Americans, Muslims have been quite successful in going to court, using law, using courts uh, to defend their rights. Um, it has it has it has been successful in most cases, not all the time, but courts and law has played a a key role in uh, these discussions. So I wanted to show that um, Islam is an American religion is in a sense that when American Muslims uh, demand the rights and um, intervene in the public sphere, intervene in the public space, they do that using Uh, arguments that uh, are related to law, to politics, and not primarily arguments that have to do with theology. So they intervene as citizens, not just as theologians, as is often uh, misconstructed uh, by the far right or some uh, anti-Muslim groups. So that's that's one thing I want to emphasize through this title. The other thing that I that I wanted to underline using this title is that um, an effect of all these controversies is the construction of Islam as an American religion, in the sense that um, American Muslims who intervene in the public debate have to somehow insist on the fact that their Islam is a good Islam in a sense that it's a faith, a spirituality, a form of ethics, and that and reassure the public that 
their religion has nothing to do with any form of legalistic or political doctrine. And in that sense, their, their rhetorical strategy of constructing Islam as a faith rather than as any form of public uh, critique uh, is inscribed in a tradition of, the, of, of construction of the good religion as this, this form of spirituality as opposed to any form of public expression of faith. And I, I said, following the work of scholars like Winifred Sullivan or Sabah Mahmoud, that this is the continuation of a specific um, normative understanding of acceptable religion in the U.S., where sort of post-Protestant understanding of what a good religion should be in a modern secular democracy. It should be a sort of privatized faith rather than any form of public uh, public religion. So... Um, I, I, I suggest that Muslims, in a way, are pushed to to emphasize this particular understanding, this particular American understanding of acceptable religion, and this contributes to their uh, integration in in the democratic debate. But that also um, limits the scope of their public critique and their political intervention. Um, and how are some of the controversies that you expose uh, beyond Islamophobia? Um, and how does this tension affect lived realities of Muslim communities in the West? So in the book, I wanted to show that um, these, these controversies that I examine about the construction of mosques and the meaning of Sharia and the place of, of Muslims in the public sphere are not primarily or essentially um, opposing Islamophobic movements and uh, pro-Islam or Islamophile movements and obviously far-right movements that oppose mosques or that spread the Sharia panic are Islamophobic uh, to a large extent. But I wanted to show that there is, uh, in my view, something um, deeper that is going on in, this, in these debates, in these polemics that has to do with uh, fundamentally diverging views about the meaning of liberal democracy, the meaning of secularism, and the meaning of um, the American national identity. And it's it's uh, one uh, chapter of the book examines the whole discussion around Sharia law and the so-called infiltration of Islamic law in U.S. courts. And I show the debates uh, and the legislative war around this issue. And it's interesting to see how um, states that have passed uh, bills uh, ha that have passed these legislation are um, very much informed still by debates uh, that have to do with uh, the the tradition of racism in, in the U.S. And so I want to show and I want to suggest that these discussions around Islam often operate as a proxy for discussions about race, about uh, identity, uh, and reenact uh, more ancient, more uh, older uh, divides that have that have um, that have been that have played a key role in the in the American discussions around democracy and the Constitution um, and the the role of history and interpretation. Um. How is the polemic 
about Islam situated in the, and I quote, paranoid style of American politics, um, as well as the broader contest of what America is today. So I use, uh, I refer to the, 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 the book by uh, Richard Hofstetter, The Paranoid Style in American Politics, to explain some of these uh, controversies around Islam and the particular texture of, the, of, of these discussion. And uh, I want to replace these conversations in the longer, longer uh, conversation about most religious minorities. And what's uh, interesting, if you compare the ways in which Muslims today are depicted as foreign, as dangerous, as, as uh, terrorists, um, is that it's very comparable to the ways in which Catholics were depicted in the 19th century, or Mormons, or uh, Freemasons, or Illuminati, or Jews. So I, I, I think uh, that it's important to... Uh, underline what's specific today about anti-Muslim movements, but that it's also uh, it's also interesting to show that these discussions, in a way, continue a longer tradition of casting a religious the the newest re religious minority as foreign dangerous. And the comparison with Catholics in the 19th century, I think, is particularly revealing because Catholics, like Muslims today, were uh, were suspected of being uh, incapable of loyalty to the American Constitution because it was assumed that they would be loyal to the Pope or the Vatican and therefore would be a threat to the political order. Um, and they were there was also all this fantasy around the sexuality of Catholics, just like today there is all this sort of hypersexualization of Muslims in the U.S. So uh, I think the comparison uh, between uh, anti-Catholic movements and uh, anti-Muslim movements today is is, is enlightening. Um, and I think I, I also think that the work of Hofstetter is particularly. Um, um, instructive today because uh, his study of this paranoid style of American politics remind us how uh, difficult it is to engage into a constructive debate with populists and far-right movements who resort to this type of rhetorics because um, what, uh, what he says is that the, the people, the, the political actors who resort to this, this particular style are always right. No matter they they do not they do not really refer to facts they do not refer to reality they refer to a different standard of reasoning in which whatever the interlocutors say they will always be right and the other will always be motivated by a bad intent and uh, I think in the resurgence of populist discourse around Islamic immigration refugees and race today this is very uh, very very prominent. Um, so can you speak about some of the cases you developed throughout the book that, exempl that exemplify the interplay of paranoia and the absence of facts um, or the production of post-truth, as many people obviously call it today, um, in both political discourse as well as in practice? So one of um, my, uh, my main uh, case studies in the, studied in the book is the whole polemic around the so-called infiltration of uh, Islamic law or Sharia in U.S. courts that, according to some anti-Muslim movements, threatens the survival of the U.S. Constitution. 
And uh, this is a movement that has started uh, in 2010 uh, and that, ha that has uh, continued since then and that has led to the adoption of uh, anti-foreign uh, law, foreign laws in a number of states and bills that plan to criminalize any reference to Islamic law or foreign law in U.S. courts. These bills are regularly discussed in many, in many states. And um, what's uh, interesting in the case of the anti-Sharia discussion is that um, this movement is entirely based on uh, something that you could call like post-factual uh, expertise. Um, one good example is this uh, long report published by the Center for Security Policy and uh, edited by Frank Gaffney in 2010. And this is like a, a big report trying to demonstrate how Sharia threatens the survival of the U.S. Constitution. And it is based uh, on, on uh, uh, fallacious demonstrations about the threat of, the, uh, of, the, of, of Sharia and the ACLU and the Center of American Progress and many Muslim American organizations have re-labeled uh, this industry of fake experts uh, and this anti-Sharia movement as uh, a solution in search of a problem. And I think that sums up very well the, this relation, this uh, fraud relation to facts and to truth and to reality um, in a sense that people advocating for banning Sharia do not argue that um, they, they propose these these bills just based on fear or on irrationality, they would go out of their way to, pro to produce a sort of parody of expertise. Um, and this, again, makes it very difficult for people on the other side to confront them because they have the appearance of, of a sort of academic scholarship. So if you don't, if you're not really an expert on Islamic law or on American law, it's very difficult to contest the, 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 and, and the reality of, of their, of their message. Um, so, an, another, another aspect of, of the answer is, um, has to do with the important role that the reference to emotions have come has come to play in these controversies around Islam. Um, I look at the whole debate around the so-called uh, Grand Zero Mosque, and uh, I underline the the peculiarity of one argument of the anti-mosque movement, uh, and their argument was the following: was we know you have a right to build a mosque and we know we have you have a right to religious freedom and to private property and to buy a land and and build an islamic community center that's not the issue what we we know you have rights but what we say is that it's not right to do this at this moment at this place because in doing so you're offending us so there's a sort of reversal of the of the uh, relationship between victim and offender in which the anti-Muslim movements present themselves as the one being offended and bring about the whole notion of affect and feelings and uh, moral offense. And when you, when, you, uh, when you put forward this type of argument about emotionality, it, it's again very difficult to argue and to have a peaceful argument based on reasoned uh, discussion because an emotion is always true. So if someone tells you 
I feel offended, it's very difficult to, to argue with, with this group. Uh, so in a way, it sort of prevents uh, the development of a fact-based, peaceful type of discussion. Um, why do you think that this kind of politics of paranoia and the seemingly shocking absence of popular demands for truth have such powerful traction, um, both um, in the subject of your book or kind of contemporary politics more broadly in recent years? Um, so I think that one of the, the reasons why these, these, uh, these paranoid uh, type of arguments are so powerful is, uh, just like I said, because it's, it's so... They, they are based on a structure that make it very difficult or almost impossible to... Uh, for the interlocutor to not be trapped in a mode of reasoning that would inevitably bring them to to failure it's it's almost impossible to to have a counter argumentation uh, against uh, people who resort to this type of paranoid uh, post factual type of of uh, of rhetoric because as I said they are always right no matter what evidence you bring uh, to the fore they would always suggest that your evidence is motivated by bad intent or by a willingness and intent to see uh, to produce um, fake news and misinformation um, so in that sense it's it's the the the, ba the very basis of the conversation is already uh, impossible uh, and will will inevitably uh, lead to the to the failure of, of uh, liberals or Democrats to to counter argue. Another another aspect uh, is has to do with the fact that the response of liberals or Democrats or people trying to fight. Uh, this these populist anti-Muslim far right movements has been mostly based on uh, resorting to law and courts. So they 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 stick to a very legalistic strategy that has produced very good outcome. Uh, they bring about the reference to the Constitution, to the First Amendment. Uh, judges have played a major role, as we saw again in the whole discussion around the travel ban more recently. Uh, but in my book, I, I look at the cases around mosque constructions and Sharia, and, and we see that courts have played a, a very important role. And American Muslim organizations and their allies in the Democrat and liberal uh, groups have always resorted to the reference to law and i think this has been very effective but has also limits has it it has limits because the the claim the sources of discontent of uh, their opponents doesn't have to do just with law it has to do with something else that is related to affect emotion a feeling of resentment of lack of recognition a feeling of of uh, being disgruntled and so it's as if you have a, a conversation with two people talking about things that ha that are radically different with one side talking about law and the other talking about emotions and i think one of the challenges to make to to create a context in which um uh, people actually manage to talk about the same thing and with the same language um so i think that may be part of the explanation uh 
of why the strategy of liberals uh, and American Muslims organizations ha has been uh, only partly effective. Um, so talking about liberalism, um, these shortcomings, if not the shortcomings because of this tension between um, law and emotion, um, which can also be a danger, um, has figured in your recent thinking and writing about Tunisia throughout the political transition since 2011. Mm -hmm. um, how have these dominant narratives around, especially around consensus and compromise, mm -hmm. um, that have become very powerful terms and concepts um, here and the way in which people think about Tunisia, defined your own analysis on um, Tunisian politics? Yeah, so I think maybe one of the links between my work on, on the U.S. and my work on Tunisia is, uh, as you said, this um, this analysis of the limits of um, um, public intervention that is based only on the notion of consensus. In the case of the U.S., um, I end the book with a, a, a critique uh, of the the condition of American Muslims, which is which is uh, which pushes them to limit their public intervention to something like we are good Muslims, we are good neighbors, we are good citizens, because our religion is just a sort of ethics and inner spirituality, and we will never claim that we have anything to say about politics or about the because because whenever they uh, they cross that boundary, they are immediately rejected as dangerous foreign and terrorists. So they have to limit the, the realm of their intervention to this, I'm a good Muslim, I'm a good neighbor, I'm a good human kind of, uh, kind of speech, um, which limits the, the power of their critique and of their, their capacity to bring dissensus, a productive one. And likewise, in Tunisia, even though it's a totally different story and context, um, in my analysis of the transition since 2011, I have uh, emphasized the importance and the success of uh, uh, the, the, the consensus and the capacity of political parties and players and to, to reach compromise, to work together, to build alliances. But the second part of the argument is to also uh, suggest the the potential um, um, toxic effect of this ideology of consensus. The one effect of this uh, obsession with consensus and compromise is the is the uh, difficulty uh, for political actors to appreciate the fact that they can act as uh, adversaries, as political adversaries. Uh, and that this this doesn't mean they have to be existential enemies, uh, and that sort of uh, creates a, 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 a political sphere that is um, very stiff, and in which uh, a true political pluralism has uh, is not is not uh, is not yet emerging or consolidating. Uh, and I've been uh, very ins much inspired by the work of uh, Beatrice Cibou. Who has, uh, who has shown in her pre previous work how uh, the concept of reform and reformism in Tunisia has always played a, a, a very normative role in the understanding of what is possible in, in poli through politics in Tunisia. She has, she has described 
the notion of reformism as this horizon indépassable of Tunisian politics. And I think this is something that, uh, even though a revolution has uh, happened in 2011, is, is very much uh, back now and defines um, and um, defines the political discussions and limits, I think, the, the capacity for uh, the emergence of a true pluralism. Um, thank you so much for talking to us about your book and about your thoughts. Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present podcast. Other episodes are available on our website www.maghrebpodcast.com as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page, Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. Subscribe to the Semat newsletter at www.sematmaghreb.org or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode.